Well, folks, if you're here today and you have your little booklet, the one that, that has been passed out, that you should have. If you don't have, we have them in the foyer. They're readily available. Love to have you have one because it helps you as we go through the lesson. It helps you stay on track. It helps you stay focused uh, and, and, and stay in tune with the lesson that we're going to be describing or talking about today with the Lord's help. So it's what's on your mind. The first lesson was a created mind. Second lesson was a changed mind. Today's lesson is going to be on a conscientious mind, a conscientious mind. Mr. LeBate, would you pray for us this morning as we begin, please? Lord, we thank you for the time we can come together, Lord, and learn more about you. I pray you use the lesson to strengthen us, God. Use this lesson to help us be closer to you. We pray you would be with Brad. Help him, comfort him, be close to him, Lord. Amen. Thank you, sir. So the conscientious mind. So conscientious, a person wishing to do what is right, especially to one's work or duty well and thoroughly. Now, a conscientious person, often described as a perfect personality for a team, is conscientious, is conscientious individuals, and they demonstrate a strong work ethic. They are reliable, punctual, pay attention to detail, and they show commitment and purpose. So I don't think we could find a more conscientious person than the Apostle Paul. Last week we talked about how the Apostle Paul was at Mars Hill. And he was debating or he was talking to those that were present um, at this location. We had the Epicureans, we had the Stoics and such like that. And they were all discussing this and that and everything uh, round about the table. You know, whatever came up, they were talking about it. Uh, they did, the Bible says they did nothing more than to see and to hear and to talk about new things. Well, Paul went to them, and he talked to them about their unknown God. Uh, they worshipped they worship, uh, plural gods, many gods, and they did have a God there that was the unknown God. And Paul took the opportunity to describe to them the unknown God. Well, you know, some believed, some rejected. Uh, so there was always that, that going on. There was that. But... Paul, nonetheless, was a very conscientious man, and he did what was right. So, you know, I get bewildered. I get very bewildered when I hear people say, well, I can't understand the Bible. Well, you know what I mean? If you're not saved, you don't have the Holy Spirit. I understand there is, there is, a, there is that, that absence of, of, of the leader or the guider of truth, because once you get saved, that Bible becomes the living word of God, and it allows us to be uh, minister to, to be strengthened, to be guided, to be led, and to be helped and comforted. Uh, but I don't truly understand when people say, I don't understand the Bible. Especially when you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12, uh, verses 13 through 14. Now this is, this is very, very, very much scripture, but I don't know how you can misunderstand it. It says here, Solomon wrote, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. I don't see the confusion there. It's pretty plain. So on the introduction here in your booklet, I'd like for you to put down for your introduction, when a change of mind takes place, albeit repentance, the conscience becomes sensitive again. When a change of mind 
takes place, repentance, the conscience becomes sensitive again. The conscience becomes sensitive again. We need repentance in our life. You know, there's, there's some people that believe that you can be saved without repentance. I'm going to use an old term that, that I, I grew up with. That's hogwash. That's hogwash. See, people want to be saved with their sin. And they want to believe that they can continue as they are with the grace of salvation. They say, well, you know, I'm saved. I can do whatever I want to do. I'm going to go to heaven anyway. That's not true. If you read the book of Romans, Paul clearly describes that that's, that's error. That's false thinking. But there are those that believe that you, you should not repent or you don't have to repent to be saved. I'm not going to get real deep theologically here because I can't get deep theologically, but I know this for a fact, that when I was saved, I felt bad about my sin. Amen. I felt very bad about my sin. You know, I was, you know I, was a, I was an average boy. I got in trouble a lot. I mean, you know, it just, just happened, man. You know, fighting, whatever the case might be. It's just part of growing up. But when my Sunday school teacher, who was a wonderful lady, Mrs. Henry, she lived on a farm. And she'd invite the Sunday school class out to the farm. I love the farm. And uh, she told me one day, she goes, you know, Dave, she said, it's because of you that Christ went to the cross. And I said, well, what, do you, what do you mean? And she said, well, your sin took Jesus to the cross of Calvary. And I understood that my sin was not good, but I wanted no part of putting Jesus Christ on that cross. I did not want to be blamed for that. But she placed it squarely on my plate. And I had to deal with it. So I, I, I felt, you know, I felt bad. So I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, forgive me of my sins. Forgive me of my, my trespasses and my error that I put thee on the cross of Calvary. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart and save me. And he did. Nine years old. I was gloriously saved. The sky was bluer. The grass was greener. Life was different. And a fellow I used to play with, Billy Fomer, across the street, we used to go out and play. And, and uh, we'd, always, we'd always end up in a fight. That's just how it was. We were both two strong-willed guys. And, and uh, I liked him. Don't get me wrong. I mean, we'd fight them. We'd get along fine. It's no problem. But we always had to get a fight, you know, get it taken care of. And I'll never forget that when I got back home after church that Sunday, that guy, I got dressed, was going to go play some football with Billy. And he did something I didn't like. And normally I would have taken advantage of that. I said, I was going to you know, say, hey, man, knucklehead. What'd you do that for? I told you to turn right when I passed the football, not left. But you know what happened? He did that, and I thought, I love him. Oh, man, that was strange. <laughs> I thought instead of, instead of frustration and anger, I thought, I love this guy. So I gave him a pass a couple times. I gave him a pass. But God changed you from the inside. I'm so glad for that. In Acts chapter 17, verses 31 through 33, God says here, it says, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man, Christ Jesus, whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto, unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. And when he heard the, of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from them. They rejected sound doctrine. That's too common of a response. Uh, when we go out and talk to people about the Lord, sometimes they'll accept that, and that's a glorious time, but other times they'll just flat out reject it. And that's just how it's going to be. Not everybody's going to be on board 
with, with what you're trying to tell them about the salvation that is found through Jesus Christ. When a change of mind takes place, repentance, the conscience becomes sensitive again. Sin has a deadening effect upon our hearts and our minds. Paul speaks about this process, and he take, which takes place over time. And, and, and he goes into it in 1 Timothy chapter 4, 4, verses 1 through 2. So we know that in the introduction, that when a change of mind takes place, repentance, the conscience becomes sensitive once again. I've, I've felt the deadening effects of sin. And this is after salvation. Um, pursuing uh, something that I thought possibly was, was okay. Bob Jones Sr. once said, he said, he goes, he goes even a good thing can be a bad thing if it gets in front of the best thing. And we know what the best thing is. Uh, I didn't necessarily think my pursuits were wrong, but it wasn't in line with God's will. And because of my um, determination and diligence to pursue it, God um, chastened me with a deadening effect in my spirit, which often he does. And the only relief from that and the only way out of that was to get with the Lord and get things square. And what I mean by that is, Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me. And the Lord graciously forgave me and got me back on track. So if you're having a struggle today with sin, if you're doing something that the Lord doesn't, doesn't approve of or condone, and you're feeling the effects of that, you don't have to stay that way. Get it right with the Lord. Say, Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Help me to do better. You know, oftentimes I'll, I'll pray to God and I'll say, God, you know, Lord, I'm your son, but I'm not a very good son. Lord, help me to be a better son. And I think that prayer, I think the Lord likes that prayer because he knows what we are. The Bible says that, that Christ, you know, he, didn't, he, he knew what was in man. He knew what was in man. He knows what's in us. You know, uh, any good that we have is from God. We can't, we can't profess to be uh, great or good when we compare ourselves to God. Now, if I compare myself to Joel Abate, I'm a great guy. But when I compare myself to God, I come far short. And we all do. So keep repentance close. God's word declares an inescapable reckoning. God's word declares an inescapable reckoning. Reckoning. Um, we have to be aware that there's going to be a reckoning. But let me continue on with this idea of, of losing, of losing this, this, this spirit sensitivity. When a hot iron is placed on the flank of an animal, it hurts, big time. But once the flesh is seared with the hot iron, it is descended, it is, is deadened to all feeling. From that point on, that branded air area of flesh is crusty and hard. The animal has no feeling in that area, and the effects of sin are much the same upon our minds. When we were once sensitive and troubled, we now sense little of the convicting power of God. The Bible says that he, that being often reproved, hardens his neck, and it continues on and says, shall be destroyed. Uh, sin is a dangerous, dangerous thing. Uh, you say, well, it's just a little sin. Well, to be honest with you, there's no such thing as a little sin. Uh, sin is bad. You say, well, I'm not as bad as Adolf Hitler. Well, okay, but... Sin is still sin. But there's hope. For the word of God is quick and powerful, powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit, 
and of the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That's found in Hebrews chapter 4. And that is exactly why the Apostle Paul stands to preach here in the midst of all the pagan altars. He is fully aware that there is but one thing that can break through the hardness of these hearts and to bring about a change of mind. He understood that it was the power of God through the word of God that would make the difference. And some did truly believe. And so there was fruit of repentance shown and given. But this is why we must spread the word. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's often um, easy to reason with somebody. It's often easy um, to even argue with somebody. But truly, honestly, as we approach the unsaved, we are to give them the word of God. Let God's spirit, the spirit of truth, do the work. My Sunday school teacher didn't have to beat me over the brow with, with, uh, you know, you know, with anything that was uh, harsh or, or hard to bear. She just told me I was a sinner. My sins convicted, you know, my, my sins convicted me. The Holy Spirit convicted me. The spirit of truth. And we see Paul using the word of God here to reach these that were at Mars Hill. Now, God's word declares a reckoning. Number A, our sure accountability. Our sure accountability. So in your blank there, you can put in the word accountability. Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he hath ordained. Acts chapter 17, verse 31. When God's word begins to break through, it sobers us to the fact that we are accountable to God. Daniel Webster once said, or he once asked, what is the greatest thought that can occupy a man's mind? This is Daniel Webster. He's a, he's a guy that wrote the dictionary and did many, many things. What is the greatest thought that can occupy a man's mind? And after a slight hesitation, he responded, the greatest thought that can occupy a man's mind is his accountability to God. And we as, as, we as humans sometimes get that misunderstood. It's not to the pastor, okay? although we should live a good life to encourage our pastor, okay? Um, you, you know, when the church doors are open, we should be here. Amen. When there's a work party, we should be here. When there's something that the pastor has that he would like to see us accomplish, we should do it to the best of our ability. We can't do everything, but we can do some things. But our accountability is not to our pastor, it's not to the deacons, but it is to the God of heaven. Yes, we come to church. Hebrews says we shouldn't forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as a matter of some is. I'm encouraged when I see Kim back there. I'm encouraged when I see Pastor Trell here from Indiana. I'm encouraged when I see Bob and Carol here. It's an encouraging thing. The Bible says that iron sharpeneth iron. Well, you can't get sharpened if you're not, uh, not where the sharpening is going on. Amen? Amen. You know, we, we have live stream, and there's people that utilize live stream, and I understand the value of it. But, you know, uh, my, my, my wife, I guess my mother, I guess sometimes she probably thinks I'm, she's my mother. But uh, my wife would get on these, these scenes on, on our little TV we have. Uh, we don't have regular TV. We don't watch cable. Okay, I'll, let me clarify that. But she, we have Internet, so she, we're very selective about what we watch. And she would put up a fireplace there, and you'd hear the crackling sound and see the flames and such like that. And one day I was sitting there watching that. And I thought to myself, you know, this is a lot like live stream. You can see the fire, you can hear the crackling, but you can't feel the warmth. And you can't feel the warmth until you're in church. 
I believe that. I believe that. I might be wrong, but God will forgive me someday, I hope, when I get to heaven. You got that wrong. <laughs> but the point is, come to church. A, number B, or A is our accountability. Uh, B is our soon appointment. B is our soon appointment. His true, how true the statement was. For as it is appointed unto man once to die, or men once to die, but after this the judgment. We may be well prepared for life, but are we prepared to die? Our families, our jobs, our social standing, our finances may all be in good order, and they should be. But God says, prepare to meet thy God. That's found in Amos chapter 4, verse 12. When you boil it all down, life is nothing more than our opportunity to prepare to meet God. Now, I guess it happens this way, but as you get older in life, as Mrs. LeBate said, seasoned, um, you become more aware that there is an, account, there is an appointed time. I, you know, I, I know I don't look 90. I understand that. I feel like 90 sometimes. But you know, someday I'm going to meet God. And you know, I have a lot of regrets. A lot of regrets. I have a lot of things I'm happy about that through God's grace we were able to accomplish. It wasn't anything I did. But someday I'm going to meet God. And so I best prepare now for that meeting. I remember one time I got, I got a little sideways with the IRS. Oh, it wasn't terribly bad, but it was enough to make me feel the anxiety of it. I remember I had to go to report to an IRS agent. And as I sat there waiting for my turn, this agent was dealing with somebody else. I mean, it was, whew. He, he, this, guy, this guy that was seeing the agent was getting read the riot act, and I started to sweat. I mean, I was getting nervous, you know. Oh, man, what's he going to do to me? I mean, you heard the things, what they could do. They could garnish your payment, take your house, take your dog. I mean, you know, it's just ridiculous. But as I was waiting, this window, this, this, this area that you could go see the ages was, was unoccupied. It was empty. And all of a sudden, the curtain came up, and inside this little booth was this very youthful-looking young man. He even looked pleasant. I said, oh, Lord, if I could just get that guy. And he looked at me and he goes, next? Whew! I said, thank the Lord. But it worked out well. But he was pleasant. He was nice. He must have been new because I was very apologetic to him. Sir, oh, wonderful. Having a good day, sir? What a great day outside. You know, the temperature should be... <laughs> I talked about everything until finally he says, um, why are you here? <laughs> and then we got down to business. But I was very happy that it was him instead of um, this Gestapo fellow. So God's word declares an incredible reality. We're going to number two here. God's word declares an, incred an incredible reality. God's word always gets personal. We don't mind sermons that condemn David or Peter or Judas. Secretly, we hope sinners get what they deserve. But when God's finger points at us, that's a different story. Um, this fellow once said, he goes, the fastest way to get people to leave your church is to preach on their sin. That's what Roger Vogelin said. He said, the fastest way to get people to leave your church is to preach on their sin. Now, eh, you know, I don't know. I've been preaching my sin before, and I got right. You know, and thank God for that. So I don't know if that's entirely true, but it's something that I heard a, a lot of. No one is exempt. No one is exempt from this incredible reality. 
The Spirit of God now gazes into the eyes of these religious intellectuals on Mars Hill, as Paul declares, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. No one is, is exempt from this appointed time with God. Earthly power will win you no favors. Earthly riches will not bribe you and escape. Your social graces and popularity will be worthless as you stand alone before God. People convince themselves that a loving God would, send, would not send anyone to hell. Surely he will allow them pass his judgment into heaven. And I've, I've heard that thinking. I've heard that thinking. I've heard a lot of things. You go out knocking on doors, talking to people, you hear everything. How many angels can, put you, can you put on the head of a needle? I remember that when I was a real little guy. I heard him ask one of the deacons I was with, and he said, I don't know. <laughs> Truly, who knows? I think angels are bigger than that, don't you think? I would like to think so. Gabriel, you know, Michael. Yeah. No one is exempt. No one is exempt from this appointment with God. Listen to the sobering words of Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel was a prophet um, back in the day, and God gave Ezekiel a message as he gave all the prophets a message. And this is what he said. Now, this now is the end come upon thee. And I will send mine anger upon thee and will judge thee according to thy ways and will recompense upon thee all thine, all thine abominations. And mine eye shall not spare thee, neither will I have pity, but I will recompense thy ways unto thee. And thine abominations shall be in the midst of thee, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel chapter 7, verse 3 through 4. Later in the same chapter, he informs us that money, our money, will not be able to bribe God. They shall cast their silver in the streets, and their gold shall be removed. Their silver and their gold shall not be able to, to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They shall not satisfy their souls, neither, neither fill their bowels, because, because it is a stumbling block of their iniquity. Ezekiel chapter 7, verse 19. B, under 2, 2B, no one can escape. No one can escape. No matter how hard we try, no one will escape this appointment of judgment before God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in their body, have done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or whether it be bad. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Regardless of her status, John declares, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. This is in Revelation 20, 12. Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, summarized it with this. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Again, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. So this is the incredible reality. No matter who we are or what we have done, whether saved or lost, we will meet God. What if it were today? As the old hymn says, would it be a glad day? I'm afraid for many the words would have to be changed to sad day. Take John's admonition, and now little children abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. You know, kind of as a side note, you know Jesus is coming back, right? You know that. You know that. Are you looking forward to that? Now, you know, I mean, young Andrew here, he's, you know, he's, I mean, he's intending to get married someday, have a family. 
Be a man. Do what men do. Now, if I were to ask Andrew, do you think the Lord should come back soon? He'll probably go, maybe in five years? But you know what? It's a glorious thing. And we should look forward to his coming. I'm looking forward to it. Because I know that I'll be bowed. I'll bow, I'll bow before him. And I'll just thank him for all the good things he's done in my life and my family's life. But you know, it's just, it's going to be a great thing. You know, I don't want to talk much about it because it's, it's just, it's too much to comprehend. But the thing that's been happening over in the Middle East, God's going to make that right. God's going to make that right. God's going to make that right. The Navy SEALs are taking care of a lot of it right now, but God's going to make it right. Yeah. God's going to make it right. Whew. Number three, God's word declares an impenitent, impenitent rebellion. God's word declares an impenitent rebellion. Rebellion. God has revealed clearly. A, the first blank is rebellion. The second blank, God has revealed clearly. Revealed. Revealed. In all seriousness, there is no such thing as an atheist. For the, invisible things of, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, Romans 1.20. And according to Romans 2, God has not only revealed himself to every man, but he has written his word on their hearts and consciences, which, which, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts, in, in the meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another. Romans 2.15. You know, you look at the American Indians, and they, they, they understood there's a spirit world. They understood there are things to worship. Now, they had it wrong, uh, worshiping the trees and the bears and such like that. Well, even in the darkest regions of Africa, uh, they, they know that there's an accountability. They know there's something that they should worship. And that's what God did. He put that in their heart. And that's why it's so important to get them on the right track and correct them and, and show them what is worthy of the worship. So in B, man has rejected, men, man has rejected consciously. Man has rejected consciously. In spite of their inner revelation from God and the preaching of God's word, there are many who still reject the message. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others, and others said, we will hear thee again on this matter. And Paul pleads with them to change their mind and to turn to Christ. They turn away. Have you ever wondered why people reject God? It is because they do not believe that he exists. Is it, is it because they do not believe that he exists? Is it because they think the Bible is full of fairy tales and cannot be trusted? No. We have just seen from Romans chapter 1 uh, in, in chapter 2 that every man knows there's a God and his word has been written in their heart. So why does he reject God? God, why is it? In his second letter, Paul is admonishing the Christians to be mindful of the words that they have heard before and hold, them, and hold on to them dearly. For he says, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers. What you have embraced as truth, what we have embraced as truth, as Baptists, okay, as truth, what we have embraced as truth, okay, there will be those that scoff, that ridicule, that laugh at and reject this truth. Why? Because they don't believe in God or that God's word is not true? No. Read the rest. Walking after their own lusts. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. That's the key. 
It's not that man does not believe God exists or the Bible is a hoax. The problem is he doesn't want to give up his sin. And, there, and this is the common condemnation, that light is come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light. Neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. John chapter 3, 19 and 20, verses 19 and 20. When there is an impenitent rebellion, impenitent rebellion. Fourthly, lastly, God's word declares an impending removal. God's word declares an impending removal. That blank is removal. A, a revealing mercy. A, a revealing mercy. Be careful how you respond to the conviction of God's word in your heart. There is a limit to God's grace. Oh, he loves you more than you can imagine, and his long-suffering is more than any of us deserve. Amen for that. But there is a limit to his grace. In Psalm chapter 103, verses 8 and 9, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. And he will, but he will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. So we see that there is a revealing mercy in A. B, there is a restrictive movement, a moment. There is a restricted moment. While we love verse 8 and rejoice that the Lord is, of, is a God of second chances, verse 9 sternly reminds us that our opportunity to respond is limited. God told Noah, to build an ark because he is going to destroy the world with water because of the wickedness that had come up before him. Noah was instructed to preach on sin, righteousness, and judgment to come while he built the ark. But before he ever started, God has set the timetable of his grace. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. Noah would faithfully preach and build. God's spirit would strive with men to repent. And for 120 years, men laughed and mocked the message. But when the time had expired, the door was shut by God and it began to rain. Here on Mars Hill, Paul faithfully declares God's word. And when that, when that message was rejected, the Bible says, so Paul departed from among them. Impenitent rebellion led to impending removal. Is God pleading with you today? about your sinful life? Is he convicting you about the direction you are going and the way you are living? Thank God for that conviction. And don't turn a deaf ear to that still, small voice. He's speaking to you because he loves you and wants to make something of your life. So in conclusion, let's put this down in conclusion. Conviction is not fun. Conviction is not fun, but... When, God word, when God's word speaks, don't rebel or don't turn away. Conviction is not fun. But when God's word speaks, don't rebel. The worst thing that can happen to you is when that still, small voice goes silent. Listen to that bone-chilling warning of Solomon. Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 20 through 33, he says, How long, you simple ones? Will you love simplicity? And the scorners delight in their scorning, and the fools hate knowledge. Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make, you, I will make known my words unto you, God says. Because I have called and you refuse, I have stretched out my hand, and no man regarded. But ye have set, all, but ye have set it not all my counsel, and with none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. 
When your fear cometh as a desolation, and as your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me early, but they shall not find me. For that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso hearketh unto me shall dwell safely and shall be quieted from the fear of evil. Once again, conviction is not fun, but when God's words speak, don't rebel. You know, I was trained when I was in college at Fairhaven. I was trained and taught that when it was time to go to church, it was a time to settle some things in your mind. What I mean by that is forget the game, forget the pot roast, forget those things that are pressing, but pray for the service. Pastor Patrell is going to speak here in a few minutes. How are we going to respond to that? It's wonderful that he came to speak. He's been a pastor for many, many years. So I would imagine that as this seasoned man speaks to us today, he has a message from God. I don't think that Pastor Patrell went on the internet and grabbed something quick. I think God's been dealing with him about this message for a long time, as he does to all men that speak. But where are we? We should be praying before God right now, saying, God, please help me today. Speak to me today. Give me what I need today, Lord. We're a needy people, but we have such a fulfilling God. There's no need that we have that God cannot, cannot satisfy or cannot meet. So let's give, let's give God his just due. God sent us a man today to speak the word of God. Let us receive it as a man and a woman should receive it. A child of God, I should say, receive it with grace, with charity, and ask the Lord to speak to us. You know, it's not so much a Pastor Trell speaking, but I want to hear God speak. I want to hear God speak. I want that word of God to speak to me because I know I need it. You know, in my own view, in my own thinking, I can give myself a pass on a lot of things. You know, and, and say, well, it's not really that bad, or I can do this or do that. But when you line up with God and his word, you know, God doesn't give a lot of passes. You know, the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, each and every one of us, you take, you take the thought, you take the idea of the most pure, blessed grandmother that you've ever known, just a, just a great lady of God, and just somebody who you know God's there with and who you feel the presence of God when you go to see her or talk to her. You take that person, and she pales desperately when you put her beside the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's a very sensitive spirit. He is a spirit of God. He's pure, he's holy, he's righteous, he's good. He's our comforter. He's as clean and as pure as you could ever be. And that's who dwells within us. How does he feel inside you? How does he feel inside me? Is he comfortable? Or does he have to, you know, remember the three little monkeys? I see no evil, I hear no evil, I speak no evil. Does he have to do that? Does he have to cover his eyes? Does he have to plug his ears? I'm not judging you. I'm just making a statement. Let God speak to you. It's not me. You have no accountability to me at all. But I'm just trying to help you understand that someday we're going to stand before God. We're going to meet God. And we're going to be 
Well, we're going to be aware of, of what we did in our life, and he's going to show us and, and let God work on us now so that we can better prepare to meet him. Better prepare to meet him. You know, this once, they once said that you can take nothing with you once you leave. You know, naked we came into this world, naked we shall leave, leave again. And I believe that. But I also believe that there is something we can take with us. That's souls. Souls for Jesus. Those that you lead to Christ will be in heaven. And they'll be there because of your witness and your testimony. Many people are watching. They're paying attention. They're thinking about their life even now. You know, be that person. Be that person that helps them on their way to God. I work with a man who's 52 years older than I am. And they had to take him out of the, had to take him to the hospital Thursday. Said he had his left arm was numb, said he wasn't feeling good. So he left, but he came back to work the next day. I said, Lou, how are you feeling? He goes, oh, some better. You know, I said, okay, okay. Well, he told me he was a chaplain at the VFW or someplace, I don't know. So I said, okay, Lou. So I talked to him quite often, try to, get, you know, try to establish a relationship with these men. And so I followed him outside after work. I said, hey, Lou, I said, you know, I'm really glad that you're okay. I said, I was a little concerned about you. I said, I prayed for you. But I said, Lou, let me ask you a question. If you would have died, where would you have gone? Would you have gone to heaven, Lou? Oh, yes, yes, I, I know the Lord. I know the Lord. I said, okay. I said, that's great. Because I said, that's what really matters. That's what really matters. And I've been talking to a lot of people up there, you know. I told my Sunday school class, I told Mrs. Turner, I said, you know, I said, I really haven't said much about being a Christian. I'm trying to get established there first, you know, because I'm a new guy. I've only been there three weeks. But Mrs. Turner, it didn't take very long before you have to declare your stand. Oh, yeah. I had one fellow come and just spew all over me the negativity about how bad the place was, and this wasn't right, and that wasn't right. So I just had to say, you know, someday everything's going to be right. He looked at me and goes, are we getting a union? No, 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 it's not going to be a union. No. I said, it's going to be a reunion. And he goes, what do you mean? And then I told him, I said, I've been saved by the blood of the Lamb. The sacrifice, God's sacrifice, saved me from my sins. You know what's funny? He doesn't come around much anymore. <laughs> doesn't spew that negativity. That's all right. We all have to make our declaration. And you know, Charles Spurgeon said that we need to be distinctive Christians. Don't be a camouflage Christian. Be distinctive. In the world we live in today, it becomes easier all the time to be more distinctive. I went to Walmart one time with my suit and tie on. I think they thought I was from some other planet. I didn't have my pajamas on. I didn't have my curlers in my hair. Sorry. Sorry. 